Father, again, we just uh, thank you for the word that you speak to us through Revelation and these seven letters to the seven churches which represent all the churches for all the ages, Lord. And so in every one of these letters, there's a word to each and every one of us. And we, there's, it's no different today as we come to the book of Smyrna and, uh, Lord, you uh, give us this uh, letter to this great church, this thriving church, Lord. Uh, in the world's eyes, it wasn't thriving, but in your eyes, it was. And so we want to see uh, just what made them such a great church and why you were so impressed with them. Because we want you to be impressed with us, Lord. We want to be pleasing to you in all that we do. And all of these things that apply to the churches, apply to our church, they apply to each one of us as individuals. And so I just ask that uh, you teach us the lessons that uh, you would give us here today uh, in the book of Revelation. We just ask for a great blessing on our study, Lord. Uh, we ask that these things change our lives and change the direction of our lives and draw us ever closer to you. Lord, we see so many things happening on the horizon that tell us that the time is near, the time to get ready is near. And Lord, I just ask that you... You just encourage us all with this text today, uh, and we can only uh, learn it and, and apply it and seal it in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. So I ask that you, you bless this study. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, and we will be in chapter number two today. Revelation chapter number two, as we look at the second letter to the seven churches. On Wednesday nights, we just recently finished a study in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a great prophet and had a great message. And he started out his message by praying to the Lord. He, he looked at his nation. He looked around and his nation was very similar to, to the state of our nation uh, back in his age. And, and so he begged the Lord. He said, Lord, you've got to do something about all of this wickedness in the land. You've got to revive our nation. You've got to save our nation. Well, be careful what you pray for. Uh, God said, Habakkuk, I'm going to save your nation. I'm going I'm to do a work in your day that you wouldn't believe unless I was the one who told you. And what is that work? I'm going to send a mighty army down, the Babylonian army, the most powerful army in the world, and they're going to destroy your cities and destroy your nation, and uh, they're going to, the remnant's going to be saved. And that's how I'm going to send revival to the land. Well, Habakkuk didn't like that answer. That answer scared Habakkuk to death because Habakkuk was an Israelite too. And so he went back to the Lord, and he went back and forth with the Lord until he came to the conclusion when the Lord had given him this prophecy that the Lord was exactly right, that the only way that the nation could be saved was through judgment. And so at the end of the book, or towards the end of the book, Habakkuk prays to the Lord, and he sa this is his prayer. He says, revive your work in the midst of the years. In other words, he called for, he prayed again for revival, but this time he prayed uh, within God's will. And he says, God, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of your judgment, revive your work. What was his work? His work was his work in the nation of Israel. And he says, and here's how he concludes that prayer. He says, in the midst of your wrath, remember mercy. In the midst of your wrath, remember mercy. Now, for the last several years, as I've observed what has been happening to our nation, I have been praying seriously to the Lord for revival, for revival in the United States of America. And I bet a lot of you, hopefully a lot of you have been praying that same prayer too because you're an American. And what happens to this nation affects you greatly. And so I've prayed for revival. But be careful what you pray for. I mean, be careful what you pray for. That answer might come in the form of judgments 
on this nation. It might come in the form of terrorist attacks like 9-11. It might come in the form of hurricanes like the one that hit Houston and the one that's devastating Florida right now. And no telling what else might have to happen for this nation to have revival. So be careful what you pray for. I mean, you pray for revival in the world, and in one week you see all of these things happening. You see, I mean, on the, I mean, at the back pages of the news, there was an earthquake, the largest earthquake to ever hit Mexico, an 8.5 earthquake. Hundreds of people were killed. We don't even see that on the news because of what's going on with the, the hurricanes. You know, I've always felt that God has protected the United States of America, and I saw the other day where Equifax, I don't know if you're familiar with Equifax. Equifax has your social security number, your address. You didn't give it to them. You didn't, you didn't offer it to them. They have it, though. They have all your personal information. And 144 million people's personal information was stolen before they found out the thieves were after it. You better get online and check and make sure you weren't one of the ones who had it stolen. I checked and Thank you, Lord, mine wasn't stolen. But you better check. I mean, you got to ask yourself, you know, those things weren't happening 20 years ago because there was a hedge of protection around this nation. And we, it's almost as if we see that hedge being pulled down and all sorts of terrible things are happening. So when you pray for revival, you better be careful, how you, you know, what you ask for because, I mean, it, it, it's, it could be really bad. When you pray for a lost loved one, when you pray for your children, when you pray for your family members that, that aren't saved, hey, be careful what you pray for. I mean, God might very well have to judge them in order to get them saved. And, you know, that applies to all of us as we pray for ourselves. I mean, I looked at this first letter, this letter to Ephesus, how this church and the members of this church had lost their first love. And when I was studying that and when I preached that last week, I was convicted. I mean, I was convicted. I don't want to lose the relationship. I want to have a strong relationship with the Lord. And so, I mean, I pray, Lord, that you keep me in a strong relationship with you. Be careful what you pray for. Because there are a lot of things. I mean, what had happened to Ephesus, Ephesus had allowed the very work that they were doing with the Lord to get in, what, in the way of the, their relationship with the Lord. And they had lost their passion for the Lord. And, and so, uh, you can, even your ministry, if you're in ministry, can get in the way of your relationship with the Lord. I mean, we have all sorts of other things. Most of us aren't in the ministry, but we have all sorts of other things that get into what, the way, our way, in, in the way of our relationship with the Lord. I mean, our nice homes, our nice cars, our, all of our little things that we have, uh, sports, entertainment. I know some people that, that they just live for sports. I mean, I think sports are a great thing if they're kept in the right context. But some people just live for those things. Our entertainment. I mean, even our health and security can get in the way of our relationship with the Lord because when we're healthy and we're secure and we have all of these things, we really don't think we need the Lord. You know, I mean, I was watching that line of people leaving Miami and leaving the coast, and they were leaving in these giant half-million-dollar campers and, and, and tagging along with their you know, pulling their half-million-dollar boats. And, you know, more power to them. I'm not getting on them for having those boats. But those things certainly can get in the way of your relationship with the Lord. And, and, they, and they can cause us to have what I would call spiritual amnesia, where we forget the Lord. Look, I want a strong relationship with the Lord. I want to walk in the light as he is in the light. I want to experience his presence. I want to experience his power. 
I want his love. I want to experience so much of his power that I feel his love flowing through me to others. I want to be used by God. And I pray that nothing will come between me and my relationship with the Lord. Be careful what you pray for. I mean, the Lord might very well have to remove some of those things that we cling to, that we almost allow to become idols in our life in order to get us back into a strong relationship with him. Now, that brings us to this second letter that we're going to be looking at today. And we're just going to be looking at a few verses here. And it's to the church at Smyrna. And it was the strongest church of all the seven churches that Jesus wrote these letters to. They were walking in a very close relationship with the Lord. But as we will see, that strong relationship that they had with the Lord came at a very high cost. They were poor, they were made poor, and they were persecuted. Yet they were the strongest of the seven churches. Now, Smyrna is an interesting church. Uh, it's set just a few miles from Ephesus in Ismar in uh, modern-day Turkey, what today is Ismar in modern-day Turkey. And it was originally settled by the Hittites about 2,000 years before Christ was born, and it's been inhabited ever since. You actually could go to Ismar today, and you can see the ruins of Smyrna. You can actually see the stadium in Smyrna where the great second century church father, Polycarp, who was an apostle of John and who was pastor of the church at Smyrna, very might, well might have been the one Jesus was writing this letter to. You can actually go to the stadium and see where he was burned at the stake. So it's a real interesting church. Even the name is interesting. The name Smyrna is the word from which we get our English word myrrh. You remember what myrrh is? You remember the three wise men? Or there might have been more wise men. That's debatable. But we'll say for the, for the sake of this study, there were three wise men. And one of the gifts that the three wise men bought, brought was the gift of myrrh. And what was myrrh used for? It was a fragrance, fragrance used for embalming people. It was a fragrance used uh, uh, for burials. And in order to get that fragrance, you had to crush the myrrh plant. Now, how appropriate was that gift that the wise man gave to Jesus? Because he had to be crushed at the cross so that we could receive the great gift of salvation. But it was also an appropriate name for this church at uh, Smyrna because they were being crushed for their faith. And they, they were, by being crushed, they were offering up this sweet melling smelling fragrance unto the Lord. So let's listen to what Jesus has to say about this church at Smyrna beginning down in verse number 8. Listen to what he says. He says, And to the angel, who very well might have been Polycarp, probably not, he probably was maybe the pastor after this guy, but to the angel of the church at Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now, remember when we were doing the introduction to these letters, I told you that in every letter, Jesus identifies himself. And remember I told you that the seven churches represent really all the churches. The number seven is divine perfection or divine completion. And so I believe that in these seven letters, in these seven introductions where Jesus identifies himself, we actually get a complete picture of who Jesus is. Well, here we get this picture that he is the first and the last. I mean, that's an awesome picture because what he's saying right there is that he is none other than Jehovah God. He is Almighty God. Remember, I took you a couple of weeks ago to Isaiah chapter 44, verse number 6. You don't have to turn there now, but let me read it to you because Jehovah says the same thing about himself over there. He says, Thus says the Lord, Jehovah, the King of Israel, the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. I am the first and the last. 
Besides me, there is no God. And here is Jesus saying the exact same thing. Now, he's either lying or he is Jehovah God. He is the first and the last. There is no God other than him. When you see Jesus... uh, when you see Jesus in Jerusalem, and one day if you're a born-again believer, you're going to actually lay your eyes on Jehovah God. You're going to see him in Jerusalem, the first and the last, almighty God. But we also look back at this verse, we see his humanity because he was dead and he came to life. He took on a body so that he could die for you and I. He could die for our sins. And so he became a human being, and he, they killed him and hung him on a cross. He died for our sins. But can you put it low in the grave he lay? But up from that grave he arose. He arose. Thank God Almighty he arose. He came to life. Now what an encouragement that had to be for the church at Smyrna. Here they were being persecuted and facing death, and Jesus said, don't worry about it. These things, says the first and the last, the one who was dead, they tried to kill me. They put me in the grave, but you can't kill God. And you can't kill the people of God. And I came to life, and if they kill you, you will come to life. Because Jesus said, whosoever believeth in me, what? He said in John chapter 11, you shall never die. You can't kill a believer. You can kill his body, but you can't kill that believer. And so he gives him this great encouraging word right here and then he goes in verse number nine and he 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 commends them look at what he says he says there's that line of com uh of commendation right here he says i know your works i know your works your tribulation your poverty but don't worry about it you're rich and i know the blasphemy of those who say they are jews and are not but are of the synagogue of satan So what's the commendation that he gives them right here? I mean, he doesn't commend them because they're great Bible students. He doesn't commend them because they pray a lot. He doesn't commend them because they're in the ministry. He commends them because of their trials and their poverty. I mean, that's that's pretty startling to me. And, And I don't think they chose to be persecuted. I don't think they chose to be poor. It happened because of their faith, because of their willingness to stand for their faith. And they were persecuted by not only the Jews, they were persecuted even more by the Romans. I mean, you go back and read about those persecutions under Domitian, and they were terrible. Under Nero, they were even more terrible. They were a little more isolated. But when Domitian became emperor, he persecuted Christians all over the world. And and the reason he did that was that he wrote that he believed that Christians were atheists. He believed they were atheists because they refused to worship Zeus, they refused to worship Apollos, they refused to worship Aphrodite, and they wouldn't bow the knee to the emperor. And the Romans believed that the emperor was God. It would be like living now in in North Korea and not bowing your knee to that little fat, short dictator. I mean, you would be forced to do that or you would die. And, and what they did, I mean, they, they really threw, basically because they wouldn't bow the knee to, to uh, Caesar, then they couldn't be members of the trade guilds. And so because they couldn't be members of the trade guilds, they couldn't get the good jobs. And so they lived basically in poverty. And not only that, Domitian offered a reward for anybody who, if you turned over a Christian, you got to keep their property. All you had to do was turn them over and you got to take everything that they owned. And so, man, there was this big motive to turn Christians in. And once they were turned in, then, then uh, they, were, they were told to either recant your faith or you will be in prison and then you will die. And 40,000 Christians died during the reign of of Domitian. A lot of Christians, a lot of fake Christians, hey, they recanted their faith. They weren't going to stand uh, up for their faith. But these, these stood up for their faith, and I believe Smyrna was, represents that group that did stand for their faith. But they weren't just persecuted by the Romans. They were also persecuted by the Jews. 
And, and the Jews were probably the most anxious people to turn them in because the Jews hated them because they were taking away members of their, their synagogue and the members of their synagogue were becoming Christian, members of the Christian church. And so they were, they were losing members. And that really bothered because they were losing money. And not only that, when the Christians were being persecuted, that took the heat off of the Jews because they were being persecuted too. So, hey, the more the Christians were persecuted, the less they were persecuted. So they wanted to see them persecuted. But let me ask you a question. Who was behind all of this persecution? Satan. You see that right here in this verse. Look at the very last part of this. It says, those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. They're not doing the Lord's will. They're doing Satan's will. And in God's eyes, these people who called themselves Jews were not Jews at all. Who's a Jew? Remember what Paul said about who's a Jew in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 9? For he who is, he is not a Jew who is one out, outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And so the real Jews, the true Jews, I don't believe we're persecuting the church, but the members of the synagogue of Satan, they were. But that speaks to the church too. I mean, before you get too hard on the Jews and the way they persecuted the church, let me tell you what, go back and read church history. Take some time and read church history and look at how the church has been persecuted by the so-called church. You go read about a man named John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was killed by the Catholic church. Why was he killed? Let me tell you why he was killed. He was a terrible man. Let me tell you what he did. He, he was writing, writing the Bible out in English and passing it out to the people. That's why he was killed. And the followers of John Wycliffe were persecuted and killed because they gave out the word of God. You know, that, you know what that says to me? That tells me how powerful the word of God is. The devil will do anything he can to keep you out of this word because there is power in this word. And so, so even the church has been the synagogue of Satan. And let me ask you a question. When the church persecuted John Wycliffe and all of those reformers and all those people who were trying to get the word of God into the people's hands, who was behind all of that? Satan was behind all of that. And a Christian is not a Christian who is one outwardly. A Christian is a Christian who is one inwardly. Jesus said it, and I've said it over and over again. John chapter 3, you must be born again. You have to have a new nature to be a true Christian. And non-Christians somehow want to persecute who call themselves Christians are the greatest persecutors of those who truly are Christians. Now, it's interesting to me, going back to this verse now, look at back at verse number 9. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't pity these people. I mean, he doesn't pity them at all. On the contrary, what does he say about them? He says that they are rich. And as you examine this letter, you see an exception to the pattern of the rest of the letters. This is the only church that Jesus doesn't rebuke in some form or fashion. You know, the main rebukes are, I have this against you. That's what he said against Ephesus. You've lost your first love. I have this against you. And he says this to these other churches. He really doesn't rebuke the, the church at Philadelphia too hard. The only rebuke they get is he says you have a little strength. And I, I consider that just a little bit of a rebuke. In other words, you're not very strong. You're pretty weak. So that's a rebuke in a sense. But this church at Smyrna, he doesn't say anything against them. There's only an encouragement for them. There's only a commendation for them. Now that's a lesson here. That's a, there's a lesson here for every single one of us. And that is that poverty, you might not want to hear this. This isn't health and prosperity I'm going to give you right now. Poverty and persecution are not necessarily a bad thing for Christians. You know what? I'm going to have to say this. They are a good thing. You know why they're a good thing? Because we become rich, if we're persecuted and we're in poverty, we become rich in what counts. We become rich in our faith. We become rich in our relationship with God. That's exactly what James says over in chapter 2, verse 5. Listen to what he says. Listen, my beloved brethren. 
has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Now, I think there's a spiritual application there. You must be poor in spirit in order to, to uh, inherit the true riches of life. But, but uh, there's, there's a material application there, too. And, I, you know, I don't think riches in and of themselves are a bad thing. Abraham was rich. David was rich. But if those riches in any way somehow interfere with your relationship with God, get rid of them. Be done with them. Because they're, they're, you don't want to, you know, lose your soul and gain the whole world. You don't want to lose it at all in your relationship with the Lord. You know... I don't believe these believers here in Smyrna started out any stronger or any more courageous than the other believers in the world at that time. Any more stronger, any more courageous than, than you and I. What made them rich, listen to me, what made them rich was their need. That's what made them rich. Poverty and pers- the, the poverty that they had entered into, the persecutions that they were facing, kept them humble. They kept them relying on God. Now, we all know that principle, don't we? In our hardest times, it seems that's when we become the closest to the Lord. And so, you know, they knew that every minute they needed the Lord, and they were in touch with the Lord, and that made for a strong relationship with the Lord, contrary to what happened to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Laodicea, who had all of these riches. They totally lost contact with the Lord. They weren't even saved. The church at Ephesus was saved, but they allowed all of these things. They didn't even allow their work to come in between their relationship with the Lord, and they had lost their first love. But that wasn't happening to the church at Smyrna. They were a strong church. Look at verse number 10. Then listen to what he says to them. Do not fear. Do not fear. You got nothing to worry about. They're just going to kill you and throw you into prison. Don't worry about it. Basically what he says. He says, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Hey, don't worry about it. That you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death. Thank you, Lord. And I will give you the crown of life. Yeah, definitely thank you, Lord, for that. I mean, Jesus comes to me and he says, don't fear, George. Uh, You're about to suffer greatly. The devil's going to throw you into prison and you're probably going to die. I'd say, say what? Do not fear? Say what? I mean, those are some terrible things. How could Jesus say to these believers... Do not fear. How could he say that? Let me tell you how he could say that. Because those words had power. When Jesus says, do not fear, those aren't just words. Those are words coming from the creator of the universe, the one who said, let there be light. This is not something you read in a book. What happened when he said, let there be light? There was light. So when he says, do not fear, guess what's happened? And you got some trouble coming. You got some terrible things coming. But he pronounces those words, do not fear. You know what happens when he says, do not fear? They quit fearing. The fear was gone. I, I've, I know a lot of you have gone through different various things in your life. And you've heard those words, terrible things. Do not fear. And when you've heard those words from the Lord, fear was gone just like that. I hate to bore y'all using the illustration too many times, but I have to go back to a couple of years ago when, when I was having a health issue. My heart was beating at 140 beats per minute for four days straight. It wouldn't come down. I went out to hit fungo to, Eli, to Nathan, and, and when I hit fungo, I hit about three balls, and usually we'd hit... Two, big, two or three big buckets of balls. And I hit about three balls to him and I couldn't breathe. 
And this has been going on, and it's just getting progressively worse and worse and worse and worse. And I left, I tell you, Nathan, we, I can't hit anymore. And so I, I went home, and Brenda said, we got to go to the hospital. we got to go to the hospital. I don't like hospitals. I don't like needles. I don't like doctors. don't like hospitals. They scare me to death. And I was afraid, but I knew I was going to die if I didn't go. And I, so I went to the hospital. They put me in an emergency room. I'll go to the emergency room. I figured we we're going to wait a couple hours in the emergency room. I was so bad that they took me right out of the line. Hey, one way to skip the line. You don't be really sick. I got out of the line, and they put an EKG on me, all these wires on me, and I'm sitting there, and I bet my pulse went to 180. I was so scared. My blood pressure, no telling what it was. I mean, I was shaking. I was almost, I was so scared. And I, they put me, they did the EKG and went back to the, to the room, one of those little bays before you get a room in the hospital. And my phone pinged. I got one of those pings on my phone, you know, one of those push alerts. And it was the verse of the day from my Bible app, and I want to read it to you. Psalms 27. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. Fear not. And I will strengthen your heart. And the fear was gone. It melted away. And it was amazing, the peace I had those five days I was in the hospital. They were running off of the test. I come out of the echocardiogram, and the guy said, this, guy's, this guy, I'm not the echocardiogram, the, angi- the one where they go into your heart and read your, I think it's angiogram is what they call it. They read your heart. And I heard the doctor, I was coming out of it, and I heard the doctor say, this guy's not going to make it if he doesn't get a heart transplant. I went to the room. My doctor came to talk to me. He says, you understand how bad this is? I was smiling, shaking hands. I said, uh, he said, you understand how bad this is? He said, you might have just a few months to live. I, I almost high-fived him, man. It was, I, I, was, I, I said, look, I've got a, the Lord told me he's going to strengthen my heart, and, and, I, and, and he's going to strengthen my heart. And that doctor said, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a 100% Christian. I always love it. Somebody says, I'm 100% Christian. I don't know if there's any other thing but 100% Christian. But one of the doctors said, I'm 100% Christian, buddy. You've got to get a heart transplant. I said, I'm not getting a heart transplant. I said, the Lord's going to strengthen my heart. Well, two years later, the Lord strengthened my heart. My heart was working at 18% back then. It's functioning at 40% now. Now, if you go to the doctor and he tells you at 40%, that's going to be a bad day for you. Because that's not good, because your normal is 55, 60, something like that. But 40 is, 40 is a lot better than 18. But that's, the point of the story is, it was a supernatural experience where by the power of God, he said, do not fear, be of good courage. And he, at that moment I heard that, he gave me that courage. And I'm here to tell you, I've seen this, I saw it with Debbie LeBlanc, I, I saw it with Faye. I've seen it with different people who have gone through certain tragedies, and I've, I've, I've just seen the power of God come over those people. And, and, and it's, it's an amazing thing. And so if you're here today and you're worried, I mean, when you hear of me, you might face persecution, you might face death, there might be a hurricane coming up here that's a cat five that's going to destroy Lafayette. Hey, seek the Lord and you'll hear those words, do not fear. And you all, you'll have perfect peace, and you'll have perfect joy. Isn't the Lord good? The Lord is so good. Now, back to the text. Who was behind their trials and their persecutions? Look at this. Who was about to throw them into prison? I mean, it was the Romans that were going to throw them into prison. But who does God, Jesus, give credit to? He gives credit to who? The devil. The devil is about to throw you into prison. And, and, and you're going to be there for a while, and this is going to be a terrible trial. But only to a degree. Only to a degree. Because look at what he says. You may be tested and have tribulation for 10 days. Now, that all, there's a lot of symbolism here in the book of Revelation. And I'm, I, y'all have heard me talk about numerology and biblical numerology before, but it's very, very important. And, and, what, and when you see the number 10, 
in Scripture, that's an important number because that is the number of the divine plan. That is the number of the divine will. That is the number of the divine purpose. And so he says here, you're going to be thrown into jail and have tribulation for 10 days. You might even be killed. But guess what? It is my plan. The devil's the one who's throwing you into prison, but it is my plan. It, is, it has divine purpose. What I'm doing has divine purpose. Now, what in the world would the purpose be of being thrown into prison and being persecuted and having all your goods taken away? A strong relationship with the Lord. A strong faith in the Lord. So God was behind this. This was God's plan for this church. And, and because this was his plan, for, and I'm not begging for God to do this in my life. Be careful what you pray for. I don't know. I want God to do that in my life. But I do want a close relationship with the Lord. And so just as Peter says, let me read you what Peter said. Remember when we were in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, But may the God of all grace who called you to eternal glory by Jesus Christ after you've suffered for a while. For a period of 10, it might be 50 days, but it's going to be 10. It's going to be 10 in the sense that it's God's divine will for you. It's God's divine purpose for you. After you have suffered for a while, Peter says, God will perfect you. He will establish you. He will strengthen you. And he will settle you in your faith. That's the purpose of trials. That's the purpose of all our trials to make us stronger, to make our relationship with Jesus Christ stronger, to perfect us. Now, we've been perfected by Christ. We stand in the, in the, by the blood of Jesus Christ. We stand in the perfect righteousness of Christ. But God wants us to perfect us for this life so that we can be valuable to him in our witness in this lost and dying world. And so he sometimes sends these trials and allows these trials to perfect us and to establish us and to settle us in a lasting, very rich faith, in a lasting and very strong relationship with the Lord. And when that happens, we're rich. We're spiritually rich. I mean, you won't hear this at many churches today. What you'll hear is you need to get materially rich and name it and claim it and you'll get materially rich. No, you'll get, you might get materially rich, but it's not coming from the Lord. I mean, again, the Lord blesses his children. I'm not saying there's anything wrong. I got way too many material blessings. Almost to the point, of, you know, I'm, I'm like, you know, I don't want this because I don't want anything to interfere with my relationship with the Lord. And look at how it all ends. Look at how it all, look at how it ends for them. You know what he says right there? And you will receive, uh, I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life. Not just life, the crown of life. What's the crown of life? It's his life. It's the life of God. You'll be filled with the very presence of God. You'll have life abundantly and you'll have life eternally. That's what I'm going to give you. So, so hang in there. Do not fear. And those words have power. And then he says, be faithful and you'll receive the crown of life. Well, wait a minute. I mean, if I'm not faithful unto death, do I not receive the crown of life? No, doesn't mean that. You know, most of us aren't even faithful in life, let alone death. I mean, I don't know what would happen to most of the people in this room if it came down to you and your your faith in your head, your faith in everything you own. If it came down, you had a choice between everything you own and your life and your faith. A lot of you, let you I'm going to say a lot of you, some of you, if not all of us. I don't know what we would do in those conditions. And, and, and so, I mean, if, if my faith is... is is conditional on me being willing to give up my life. That's a tough call right there. I mean, if, if we had to give up our life in our own strength in order to be saved, 
then, man, that, that means salvation works for me. That would be a big work. You know, the good news is eternal life is a gift from God. Thank goodness it's a gift from God. We don't earn it even if we become martyrs, you don't earn eternal life. We're not like the Muslim faith that believe if you've got to kill somebody in order to enter paradise. We don't believe that. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. We don't, we don't, we, we, all we have to do is believe in him. But here's what I want you to see. If God calls you to be faithful unto death, and you're a born-again believer, if that day ever comes, well, that can't happen in the United States of America, can it? But let me tell you what. We were on the verge. There was a change in the political winds here recently, but we were on the verge of facing some great persecution, and it's coming again. If you really want to stand for what you believe, one day in this country, maybe not in my generation, my generation's running out of time, but if this world goes on and the Lord doesn't come back soon, in your generation, especially you younger people, you very well might face persecution where you have to make a decision between your things and, and your life and your relationship with the Lord, your faith. But I promise you this, if that day ever comes, you will be faithful. How do I know that? Because let's go back to this text again and look at what he says. He says, he says here, in the last part of verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. See, that's the same voice that said, do not fear. And when he said, do not fear, what happens? He gives you the power to overcome fear. And so when he says, be faithful, when he breathed those words upon those Smyrnians, what he did was give them the power to be faithful. You won't have to have the power yourself. You won't even have to worry about what to say because remember what he told his disciples, if they bring you up and, and, and they decide they want to kill you, you don't have to worry about what you're going to say. I'm going to give you the words. I'm going to give you the power to speak. I'm going to give you the power to be faithful. The same God that said, let there be light, will say, uh, be faithful and you will be faithful. The same God that said, do not fear, will say, be faithful and you will be faithful. When he says those words, you will have the power to be faithful. One day, if, God forbid, if you're ever sitting in a prison somewhere about to lose your head, you'll hear God say, if you're a born-again believer, if, you, if you're not, you're losing your head for the wrong reason. Go ahead and recant. But if your faith is real, God's going to be there with you. He'll never leave you or desert you. Never forsake you. And he'll say, be faithful. Then he finishes up. We'll finish up. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Look around the room. How many of these people, how many people in this room have ears? You see anybody in here that doesn't have ear? Don't If you don't have an ear, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to pick on you. How many of you have ears? Everybody has ears. How many people here are born again? Look around this. I didn't mean to put you on the spot if you're not, but, but you got to get saved today. Look around at what's happening around the world. You need to be saved today. But if you're born again, you have spiritual ears. And so Jesus says, he who has an ear, those of you that are born again, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He's not just saying, you people in Smyrna. He says, everyone who has a spiritual ear, open your ears up and listen to what I'm saying to these seven churches. And here's, what, here's the word he wants you to hear. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, what's the second death? Well, we'll get into the second death in a lot of detail when we get to Revelation chapter 20. And I'm, uh, for, for the sake of time today, I'm going to spare you 
a long, detailed explanation that I'm going to have to give you again when we get to Revelation chapter 20. But let me just read you, I just kind of combined two verses from Revelation in context. I'm not taking them out of context, but let me read to you what those verses say, and this will give you an understanding of what the second death is. Listen to what he says. I'm reading from Revelation chapter 20. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. What's the lake of fire? That's not Hades. There's a difference. The lake of fire is hell. You read a few verses earlier in Revelation. The devil and his demons are cast into the lake of fire where they, and the Antichrist and where they are tormented forever and ever and ever and ever. And if your name is not in the book of life, you will face the second death and you will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, I want my name in the book, don't you? How do I get my name in the book of life? Well, we've got to go back to the verse that we're looking at right now. He says, he who overcomes. He who overcomes. Now, I've got to tell you right now, there's a, there's a, we could go a long time on this. I'm not going to do it. But there's a lot to be said about what he means by overcoming. I think primarily he's talking about overcoming the devil, overcoming the world, overcoming the flesh, overcoming the pride of life, overcoming death. He who overcomes those things will not face the second death because their names are written in the book of life. Now, I want to give you some really good news. In Revelation chapter 12, he says they overcame the devil. They overcame all of the devil's stuff. All of the pride of life, all of the flesh, all of, I'm talking about the world. I'm talking about this world system that's anti-Christ. They overcame it by the blood of the lamb. That's how you become an overcomer. If you've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, I've got some great news for you. You're an overcomer. And you have nothing to fear. And you will be faithful. Because it's the one who shed his blood for you. And has covered you in his blood. That said that he who began a good work in you. Will he, the one who shed his blood. The one who saved you by his blood. Made you an overcomer by his blood. Will complete that work till the end. That's good news. So, here were these believers in Smyrna. And no doubt they had prayed. I can just see this little church, this little powerful church praying for God and what they were praying for more than anything else was a strong relationship with the Lord. And they got it. They got it at a cost. Poverty and persecution and even death. That was the cost. Do you want a strong relationship with the Lord? Do you really want a strong relationship with the Lord? Be careful what you pray for. It very well might cost you. I think trials and persecutions come with the territory. Poverty sometimes comes with the territory. Some people in here might even have to give up their lives. Worse than that, they might have to give up their motorcycles 
or their nice homes or whatever we might end up having to give up. If those things have come between us and the Lord, we want to give them up. And I'm not picking on anybody about motorcycles. I could have said cars or I was picking on a few people, but, but we all have things. God's blessed this country mightily. And when I see things happening like are happening in our country, you know what makes me, makes me the saddest? It isn't that we're getting, losing all our stuff. It's that we've gotten all this stuff and we've forgotten God. And if God's got to take all the stuff to get this country back to God, I'm all for it. I'm sorry. I'm all for it. What a trade-off. Trade-off our stuff and our comfort and all of those things for the power and riches of God. For a rich faith and a strong relationship in Jesus Christ. I'll take that any day over my stuff. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this great little church in Smyrna and the lessons that they teach us. Lord, the church that you commended more than any other church. So there's a message right there, Lord. I, I'm sure you want us to be like them. And Lord, I think we have a choice. I think we can voluntarily give up some things or we can, we can, we can just make an effort to not let those things come between us and you. Maybe we can keep our stuff if we do that. But Lord, if it takes taking our stuff to make us right with you, Lord, I, I beg you that, that you do whatever it takes to revive this country. Lord, that, that in the midst of your judgment, you remember your mercy. We ask that for those people in Florida, Lord. We ask those, for the people in Houston. We ask that for the people of the United States who are we're all going to be affected by these storms what's going on in this world. We ask that in the midst of your judgment, you remember your mercy. Lord, you're all about mercy and love and all about grace. And we thank you for that grace that you've made us overcomers by the blood of the Lamb. And Lord, that those of us who know you and are born again will be faithful to you till the end, not in our own strength, but by your power. We won't be afraid, Lord, of whatever comes our way because those words speak power when you speak them into our soul. Again, Lord, we just thank you for everything that we have been given and blessed by through Jesus Christ. We ask that you make us your servants. Lord, we ask you to make us serious about our relationship with you. We ask all of that in the name of Jesus. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.